Hello, this is Toner Quinn, and this is the 12th episode of the Journal of Music podcast. This week, my guest is Cathy Jordan, singer with the traditional Irish group Dervish. Dervish recently celebrated 30 years together and received a BBC Folk Awards Lifetime Achievement Award. Their most recent album is The Great Irish Songbook, which features artists such as David Gray, the actor Brendan Gleeson, Andrea Corr and Rhiannon Giddens. I spoke to Cathy about the early days of Dervish, the band's recordings over the years, including At the End of the Day and Travelling Show, the experience of performing at the Eurovision Song Contest and the impact that had on the band, the new album, writing her own songs, and we spoke about the importance of folk music. Remember that you can support the Journal of Music by visiting journalofmusic.com forward slash support. My conversation with Cathy begins with her telling me how she began singing. Well, my parents uh, loved to sing. My father in particular was a bit of a celebrity around home. He always sung in the singing lounges, you know, he, Patrick Jordan was never, um, you know, in a, in a situation where there was a band playing that he wasn't asked up for a song, you know, and, but he loved to sing and he, that was his social outlet and he worked very hard in his life, you know, and farming and sowing crops and all of that for us all to eat. And his, his happiest times were when he was singing, you know, so we all had a repertoire. So uh, there was a recording made um, when I was three, Relations Home from America, and I, I was singing uh, The Bunch of Violets on, on that when I was three. So we all were encouraged to sing and uh, have a little repertoire. So, And even at a young age, when you saw your father being asked to sing or singing publicly, was that something that you aspired to? Oh, yeah, I soon followed after, you know. Um, my brother Richard as well, he's a great singer, so he'd be asked to sing and then I'd be asked to sing. So we used to go out as a little drove of, uh, you know, minstrels that would, you know, have our party pieces ready for, for whatever occasion, you know. And I took after my father, there was, I didn't, I wouldn't see any point of going to a pub where there wasn't music, you know although he got over that phobia um, later in life. But, you know, when you, go, when you go to the trouble of going out and getting dressed and being sociable, um, there needs to be music as well, you know. And this, is, this was in Roscommon? Yes. It, yeah. Around Scramog? Um, yes, Tarman Barry, Lanesborough, Strokestown, and those kind of areas. And, you know, do you remember the times there was singing lounges in the absolute middle of nowhere, but there could be, you know, 400 cars, you know, going out dance, you know, everyone would be going dancing and there would be a band and, you know, certain, like Eamon Kelly and the Merry Men used to play on Sunday nights in the hilltop. And the hilltop was, you know, in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Anyway. Every weekend I spend in those sort of establishments. I presume, though, it was a really, it was a really wide repertoire. Yes, yes. I mean, yeah, not just Irish country and Irish. You know, you could hear, and even at sing songs, you would hear, you could hear Elvis, and you could hear um, Patsy Cline or Ditline, and you could hear, um, you know, Irish ballads, rebel songs. I mean, you name it everything 
went, you know, there was no distinctions made or no, um, no talk of genres. And so was there any particular moment or experience when you began to gravitate more towards the traditional music scene? Well, I mean, it was always around, like in every household, traditional music and ballads were popular, but um, country music as well. But as I said, yes, I, did, I didn't make the distinction until, until really Dervish, when I, when my sister used to go to college in Sligo and, and I used to come down and visit her and the lads from Dervish um, had uh, one record out, The Boys of Sligo, and they were looking for a singer. And at the time I was, I was um, playing gigs with myself and my guitar, doing everything from Paul Simon to um, Michelle Schacht or all sorts of Dolly Parton, anything went. And Irish uh, ballads as well and songs. And so they asked me to join and they were looking for much older stuff, which I, I might have had just by by accident or by chance, but it kind of opened uh, the door to me into a the into researching and looking for old gems in the archives. And when we made the first album, Harmony Hill, uh, those songs were like just um, rooting through old recordings and old tapes and stuff of, of um, from from the radio that I had made, and you know and and the lads would have made. So all those songs like Welcome Poor Paddy Home and The Hills Green Moor are from old recordings that we would have had of sessions. And, um, but was there so an instant... That, that start. Was there an instant musical connection between you and Dervish? Did you sit down and play together before they asked you to join? Well, the lads were in a rock band, funnily enough. Um, like, kind of like the chorus before the chorus. Uh, My- Michael Holmes was the bass player and Liam Kelly played the flute and Shane played the accordion and there was drums and, and uh, saxophone and Liam actually played the saxophone and, um, and a s- singer and I used to play support to them with my guitar. Right. So, um, and then there'd always be a session. So that got rid of the performance element and just, you know, just trashing out whatever stuff we knew. And um, when they were looking for a singer, then they asked me to join. So it was right place at the right time. And I, I had been living in Longford and ready for a change. And um, I hitchhiked down with my things on my back and my guitar. And I'm here ever since. In Sligo? In Sligo, yeah. And... Did you have particular aspirations for the band at that stage? Did you have any plans in mind? Were you just going with it? Well, I was going with it. I didn't, I didn't know where it was going to lead. I mean, yeah, it's cool to be in a band. I had been in bands before, so this was different. There could be travel involved. We could be leaving the country. Wow. But really what sold me on the whole thing was when I played my first gig with Dervish at the Ballyshannon Folk Festival. Um, in 91, I think it was. And it was the first time ever that there was a captive audience, you know, that people wanted to listen to what you were saying, you know, the story of the song and the song itself, like hanging on your every word. I mean, I wasn't used to that, except maybe 
if I sang in church or something, you know, that very night was the night I knew that this is what I wanted to do, you know, and worked as hard as I could at it from, from then on, you know. In the 1990s, you and the band, you, re- you released a spate of albums, about five in a decade. There was playing with Fire and Harmony Hill and At the End of the Day and Live in Palma. It seems like a really intense creative spurt for the band that first decade. Well, we were, we were young and enthusiastic and we had loads of time and uh, on our hands and, you know, there was no mortgages and there was no kids and there was no, uh, no distractions, I guess. Uh, we weren't full time at music, but we spent every spare moment we had on music. I mean, during that time, funnily enough, we were all we all had second jobs. I mean, I was working in a restaurant and a bakery and stuff like that. And and music was it's the minute you finish, you're straight into it. So it's amazing how productive we were, given the fact that we had less time, you know, and to to dedicate to it. But we were really we really had a, a mission to, you know, be, you know, on the big stages and be like Dedanon and like Alton and like um, the Stockton's Wing and Planksty, the Bothy Band. I mean, we had those ambitions and um, and we we put a lot of work and effort into it until such time as we could give up the day jobs and focus full time, you know. And then... I suppose, you see, in those early days, we weren't, in the very early days, we didn't have as many gigs either. So it was all about the recording and the the research of the material and all of that. So the more gigs you got, the less time you had for recording. And it was harder to, to, to get the time. And then little by little, families came along and paternity leave came along and mortgages came along and... So there was more, more time gigging and less time recording, you know, um, we'd tour extensively and, you know, in a big um, March, April, May, June, July, August. And then when you get back, you mightn't be as inclined to go into the studio, you know. And was there a particular album in those early days that you think was a turning point for the band that allowed you to go full time? Um... I'd say probably at the end of the day, I think, was it? Um, and Palma as well. I mean, because Palma was the kind of the, the end of the era with Shane McAleer. Um, I on mean, fiddle. that was on fiddle. And when Shane left, I think it shook us as well. So there was another impetus to keep everything going. And then Shamey arrived and... Um, so there was a new energy kind of brought in at that time as well. What do you think? It, what do you think it was about the album at the end of a day that sort of captured people's imagination? I just think there was great material on it. Um, there was great songs on it, great arrangements. I think we had matured as a band. We kind of established our sound, and there was lots of lots of new work coming in because of it and it was you know it was new and exciting you know to have the new album out that we were proud of and reviews were great so yeah it was just was, was happy days you know 
And did you always play the Bowron and the Bones? Or was that something that you began to develop when you were with the band? That's, yeah, I did, yeah, because they needed a Bowron player. I mean, I played the guitar, but they didn't need a guitar player. And, um, but they wanted a, a Bowron player. So luckily, I had a, a friend, Monica, who had taught me a few things on the Bowron before I joined. We I used to play on the side of a cornflakes box with a deodorant bottle. That's how I learned to play the Bowron. And uh, she played the bones and she got me a set of bones. So I I learned some tricks off her and, you know, it's kind of hit the ground run. And then, you know, in sessions just, you know, and then you pick up the, the tricks as you go. But yeah, I mean, if I was to hear my early Bowron playing, I wouldn't be too thrilled with it. But, you know, it was what it was when it was. And that's all I'll say about that. Dervish always seems to have been taking an independent approach in its recordings in the sense that you own all the recordings. They're all on your own Mm. label, Whirling Discs. Yes. Was that a conscious decision to sort of hang on to your music? Not in the beginning. It It was a decision that was made for us by the fact we couldn't get a record company to, you know, like the 80s, um, there was record deals to be got and Green Linnet were out there and, you know, those Irish music was was very popular. Um, but when it came along to the 90s, um, or the mid-90s, it was kind of drying up and other musics were, were getting popular. And, you know, it's all cyclical. It's every maybe 20 years or whatever. So we were on the weaning part of, you know, the big boom of of where the where the record companies wanted to invest, so we couldn't get the record deal, and so we set up our own record company, Whirlingis, in order to bring it out. We thought that's what you had to do, so that's what we did. And subsequently, it was a great thing because uh, we own all our own music, you know, bar the latest one, which is on Rounder Records. All the rest of them are on Whirlingis, and it's a great achievement to you know produce and and own and you know arrange all your own stuff and have the control over because there's some horror stories out there of of you know bands and musicians get screwed by record companies or managers or that and um, at least we didn't fall prey to that. In the 2000s it feels like the band began to branch out more in songs as well and you recorded a Bob Dylan song on Spirit, a Cher Mm -hmm. song, Suzanne Vega song on Travelling Show and you began mm-hmm. singing with The Unwanted. And you also performed as part of the Eurovision. Were your interests changing at the time? Or was the band keen to do different things? Or were you trying to reach out to new audiences? I guess we were, all of the above. Uh, I mean, it was like, we've done all the huge gigs. We've done all, um, did Rock and Rio. We did, you know, Drenuter. We did... Celtic Connections, we did uh, Cambridge, we've done all the big um, shows. So I guess we were looking at a way of expanding. Is there another level after this or what, you know? And, you know, I suppose there was a restlessness of sorts as well that, you know, when you go back to making an album and you think, oh God, there's only so many ways you can approach this, you know? 
the mandola starts, the bazooki starts, the accordion drone starts, you know, all the combinations we, I suppose, we felt that we were um, limited, I guess, maybe. And if, uh, if we expanded the repertoire out a little, we could have a different palette to play with. And how did the opportunity come about to perform at the Eurovision? We got a phone call, you know, um, so, and it was the, it was in the days that there was no national song contest as such. So, we, you know, we didn't have to go through a competition. It was, you know, at the beginning, you were straight onto the Eurovision stage. Do you want to do this? We will provide the song, you, and, you know, it's not often you get to put on the Irish jersey and this was like, you know, wow, this would be an experience and, you know, we got to make a video and, um, you know, there was lots of TV work, you know, it was, lots, it was a hugely uh, advantageous experience, not quite the result now, but, but the whole journey of it, you know, was amazing and, um, yeah, it's one of our big stories among ourselves, like that whole uh, episode, you know, it was hilarious in so many ways. Um, How did you feel after the Eurovision experience, though? Oh, oh, it was devastating, um, you know, because you, you don't go out there to, to lose. or So it was devastating, um, but we didn't have much time to... to, to dwell on it because the week after we came back we were going to Latvia and Lithuania with Mary McAleese you know we were the the cultural side of the the visit um so that was an amazing trip and it was a fantastic antidote and and it, it was a realization that you know that was just a bizarre journey into outer space but it had no connection or no basis in the reality of, of what we do normally and it didn't change a thing in terms of of the work or uh, in terms of the gigs in terms of the audience in terms of anything but it felt so massive um, that you know to when it finished you know it was the wind were, was out of our sails but then to get back up on on the on the horse that, you know, we always rode, you know, it was a great relief. It was like, what was all that about? You know, that was bonkers. <laughs> um, so yeah, it remains, uh, you know, an amazing part of our history and a bonkers part of our history, you know, so, um, you know, I don't regret it at all. I mean, it was, it was incredible. And the amount of friends we made and the experiences we had and the laughs, oh my God. To this day, I mean, if you were to sit us down any night and there's a good banter about the past, you know, if that era comes up, we will just be on the floor laughing with, you know, some of the stories. But that's From amazing. everybody individually and together. Yeah. That's amazing, though. That shows a sort of resilience in the band that it didn't knock your spirit at all. No, in, uh, in fact, it had quite the opposite effect you know, because like while maybe we were looking for something different and looking to, you know, see what else is out there and, you know, um, 
I think if that didn't happen in, in some ways that we mightn't have stayed together. But because it did and it was so devastating to us, it kind of regrouped us and re-solidified us. And, you know, we were, you know, nothing is going to budge us now, you know, that kind of way. And, um, you know, it, it made us into a, a, a tighter family unit, you know. And was there a sense then that you wanted to get back to your roots and Oh, after- of course. Yeah. Um, well, the album Travelling Show was actually already made, I think, at that point. So it was the next, um, you know, that was probably did after the Eurovision. And uh, and then it was, was it the Trish and the Storm after that? God, you probably have the anthology better than me, but... Um, it was, yes, yeah, it, w- it, yes, was, it was. It was just, uh, you know, onwards, you know, next, mm. you know. That was 2007 now, like, so that's... 13 years a long ago. time ago. Yeah. yeah. What does the sort of tradition of song and music that's around you and that you're involved in, what does it inspire you to do now? Is it looking for more songs to sing? Is there other musical things that you want to do? Well, I, I want to, I mean, my, my biggest ambition is to, to write more, you know, um, and it's kind of like this, there's a time for everything. It's like I've been assimilating for long enough, you know, um, and there's something cooking. I'm not sure what it is yet, but, um, and I like to give myself as much time as I can to that. It's not always easy. It's like, mm, I'd have to tidy the room before I can, yeah, I have to do this before I can, you know. So, the, but I'm getting closer to it. And there's something about this lockdown as well that um, has brought everything back to basics and, um, you know, is making me think of my upbringing and where things were very simple and everything. It was tougher, but it was simpler and people seemed happier with less. And there was the garden and there was the singing and there was family and there was community and, you know, and it seems to have gone back to that in, in a lovely way. I'm in the garden every day and the birds are singing and it's just very um, reminiscent, I guess, and nostalgic maybe, but also very comforting. Um, I'm not worried about, you know, next year, Maybe I should be, but I'm not. I I'm just I find it very nice to be in the present at the moment. Yeah. Have you written many songs over the years? I know you've put music to, ly- to lyrics. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, I have no problem doing that. I have umpteen tunes, you know, but it's to try and do the lyrics. And, you know, there'll come a time where, you know, I'll say I can either do this or I can't. You know, I've tried for long enough, but I'm always tipping away at it. Um, but I suppose it's the, the lyrics are the, the really difficult thing, you know, because there's so many great songs out there and then you compare and contrast and um, they never seem to come up scratch. There's great ideas maybe that need to be kind of um, worked on and honed in on. And um, there's a whole element of patience, you know, that is involved in that and you know it's a great talent to be a wordsmith and I don't claim to be one but I I have I have three or four songs written now with 
with um, lyrics and, you know, it'll, there's more coming, but whether they see the light of the day, I'll have to make that decision, you know, and maybe pass them by eyes, under eyes that, um, that knows more about what is, you know, what's in this and what could be improved in it and that kind of thing. So I, I don't claim to be an expert at it, but I, you know, you, you can never be an expert at anything unless you try. So the band was 30 years together last year. What's the key to keeping a band together for 30 years? Uh, oh, I don't know. Um, laziness. <laughs> no, I guess we're, we're good mates. We live in this town. We're very proud of what, you know, the albums we have made, you know, we're, we're kind of family. We're a second family. We spend more time together than, than our real families. Um, we have a shared history, shared geography. Um, there's a kind of an invisible glue that, you know, and also the gigs keep coming, you know, so there's gigs in, you know, a year, year and a half, two years in advance. So you're always going to get to that point, you know. Um, and then when you're there, you know, the carrot, the stick is, is further further away. So along you go. I mean, when we started, there was no way we would have told you that we'd be still together in 30 years or, you know, so, you know, we still love it. And the older you get, the more privileged to feel to be able to do it and to get out there and, and, um, and sing the songs and play the tunes that were passed on. And, you know, it's a great privilege and to be part of the whole culture is amazing and the community and you know the the family of of musicians around the world you know and it's it's an extraordinary um network of little roots and branches going everywhere how we're all connected and um yeah it's 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 a great honor yeah what did it mean to you to receive the lifetime achievement award from the bbc last year well, that was incredible. Like that was, that was amazing. It was, um, you know, wow. It wouldn't, I didn't see that coming, you know? And, um, yeah, it was extraordinary. And, um, the BBC have been so good to us down the years and the BBC are, are great at, at nurturing the, the whole folk, um, world. And they, they never, uh, underestimate, the how folk music has influenced all the other musics and you know if you speak to anybody who has has made it at all if you go back far enough there's folk music in there somewhere there's some influence of it and it's it's the shoulders that you know everybody stands on the folk music and tradition and um it can't be underestimated as a as a source and a you know of huge inspiration for for so many so BBC have been great in that way and just to, to be honoured by them is, is wonderful. We're delighted. Your most recent recording, The Great Irish Songbook, you mm. brought together a, a, a large group of artists, including Rhiannon Giddens and David Gray. Can you tell me about working on that album? Uh, yeah, well, um, just... It took an awful long time to complete. It was a mammoth task. First of all, to whittle down um, the great Irish song book into what would fit on an album because there's so many superb 
uh, songs um, and I get to sing them every day now in this lockdown. So that's a good thing. But the original list was was 100 songs long and the second list was 150 songs long, you know. So it took us an awful long time to whittle, whittle, whittle down. And, you know, maybe we had it down to 25 or something like that. And then it kind of started to evolve that um, the singers um, would choose their own song. So Rounder Records um, approached us to, to do this. Um, so we got the songs and then we tried to marry songs with artists. And sometimes that worked and sometimes the artists would say, um, not that song, but can I do this song? So. We had a we had a um, a stipulation that the songs had to be over fifty years old, but when David Gray says I want to sing the West Coast to Clare, you know, written by Andy, you know, in the seventies, you, you say yes, of course, um, David, three bags full. Um, what was so it like working that, with David Gray? Well, as you know, I mean, technology is such that now you don't have to sit in the same room. We didn't sit in the same room as David. Um, but every song has a story in terms of how it was recorded and the, the way in which the the artist, you know, like for for the Rocky Road to Dublin, for instance, um, Brendan Leeson came down to Sligo. We had a great day recording with himself and his brother. Uh, same with Imelda May, with Molly Malone. Uh, David Gray recorded his remotely, um, as did Vince Gale and uh, Steve Earle. Um, but the the nutshell of it all is is quite amazing how many artists um, of all genres have a love of Irish songs and they all have a, an Irish song that they, they love to sing and would love to record and might never have the opportunity in their own, you know, albums and, and they, they jump at the chance then to, 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 to sing it. I mean... Vince Gill was a huge fan of the song Raglan Road and does a superb job on it. And so, yeah, and uh, unfortunately we had our tour cut short and we had some more songbook um, shows to do in the States, but uh, it wasn't to be. And that's everybody's story, of course, but we'll be back. Thanks for listening to the Journal of Music podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or follow us on SoundCloud. This episode was presented by Toner Quinn and produced by Shannon McNamee. For more on the Journal of Music, visit journalofmusic.com. <laughs>